Hello, I'm Ted Brzezelski. Sunday morning, it's time for another episode of Words and Work. Today we're going to have Lydia Otero on. She's got a new book out called L.A. Interchanges, which is a sequel to her book In the Shadows of the Freeway. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, get started. All right, uh, we've got Lydia. We we had some uh, technical issues, which none of you would have known about, except I just said that. Um, so, first of all, uh, the new book is called "L.A. Interchanges," um, and uh, it, you know, I, I I think a lot of people want wanted to put the first two books together just because one was academic and the other was you know, more of a personal view of what had gone on. But really, I, I kind of put the second and third together and count the first one by itself, <laughs> you know. Right. But first of all, you talk a little bit about the reaction you've gotten to this book. I I, I remember reading online uh, from Henry Barajas that he showed up at one of your readings and gave you a big hurrah uh, in L.A., Right, right, right. Yeah, it was good to see Tucson folks there, and Heather was there, uh, Heather Gray. So, yeah, I think that uh, I'm, like, known for writing uh, Tucson history and as a Tucson historian. And so this is different for folks, right, because I'm. It's the geography is different. I, I left for L.A., and uh, I lived there for 20 years, from 1978 to 1998. So it's precisely 20 years. And uh, so this catches up. Uh, if people are interested, after they read the Tucson, growing up in Tucson book about uh, being raised near the freeway and the consequences of being raised near the freeway, about my education in terms of public school education and elementary and high school years, so after that, if they're interested, I moved to L.A. to become uh, an activist. And I become an activist. Not that I, I wanted to be an activist, but I didn't know how to integrate all, sort, all my sides to me, right? Because I was very definitely aware of being a uh, uh, Chicanex, Chicane, or chic at that time, Chicano, because that even the A was a little bit not talked about. Uh, in the in 1973, but I was very aware of having a consciousness of that being uh, brown and different. But I didn't want to just like join the UFW or join um, groups that were predominantly just uh, Mexican Mexican American groups. I wanted to join Mexican American and queer groups. So when I left for LA, that was very much in my mind, and that's very much what I got involved in. And uh, uh, it's not that I had to leave to L.A., but in a way, because of the things that were happening to me in terms of finding my place of being, as the book says, brown and queer, L.A. was the best place for me to find that that all all parts of me and express all parts of me in in my my organizing. Like if I would have been in a Mexican-American group, I would have had to maybe stay in the closet or be less vocal about my my gender affiliations or choices and if i would have been in a white queer group i wouldn't have had be able to express uh my brown self uh fully so i was lucky to 
arrive in 78 and just as these kinds of groups were forming. So I was very active in the 1980s and in the early 1990s um, and in gay and lesbian Latinos Unidos, Lesbianas Unidas, lesbian lesbians of color and groups groups that that were important to uh, to all of us in those organizations. But I think as we look back historically, they're also important because we were uh, forming uh, and organizing that long ago. You know, I, I think now one of the buzzwords that gets thrown around is intersectionality, and it's kind of yeah. what you're talking about. But right. How much? I, I don't. I don't know if there was that word being used that way back then, and, and how much of it no. was there in those days. Uh, there wasn't, but you know, just the name of a group like Lesbians of Color was indicative that it was uh, for for queers of color at that time, um, and gay and lesbian Latinos Unidos. That was the, by the title of the organization. No one ever said, "Hey, we're intersectional here." But everybody always felt, I guess as, as I talk to people, when I see documentaries, people always say, well, there was a sense of belonging that I hadn't felt before. And I think in that language and talking about belonging, that that's what they're expressing is finally, there was a place that accepted all these different aspects of my identity and that built on those, not just accepted that, but that's how we organized. Uh, and we'd uh, go into... Uh, uh, spaces knowing that we weren't the only ones because that was a big deal in 78 and the early 80s that we were the only ones uh, because I knew that there were uh, white queers that were organizing but I just didn't feel part of that movement and I didn't feel part of like um, of, of that language that they were using um, so I knew that there was another element, and that's where the intersectionality comes in uh, to the to this to those organizations back then. But of course, uh, we didn't use that that word. We didn't use the word gender either. Uh, you know, we just assumed there were two genders, and that there were lesbians and gay men. Uh, and so this new idea of 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 queerness, of of for, as I identify now as non-binary, that um, that wasn't even something we talked about uh, back then. In terms, so that's evolved too. So I think a lot of of identity terms have evolved, and um, and how people organize or choose who they choose to organize with, it, they have more choices. You know, it's funny when you talk about the the uh, you know what uh, the things that weren't talked about and the and the things that weren't even identified, uh, the, mm. the concepts that weren't identified, and then you 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 know the use of the word queer. I mean, when I was growing up, queer was an insult. I mean, if you if you walked into a meeting of, of folks that were gay and lesbian, yeah. you used that word. It was a faux pas, you know, and yeah. then. Solely emerged to be sort of this identification for. I, I'm not even sure what to call it, but a, a kind of a for folks that are non-binary, folks that have very different views of gender and sexuality. I mean, should talk a little bit about how you've seen that word uh, evolve. 
Right. I, I guess that uh, uh, I've seen it evolve to be more of an umbrella term to include different uh, gender identities because gender identities in themselves keep evolving, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, and some and still there's not room uh, for everyone. There's still a critique about it being too to excluding certain folks. And, but uh, yeah, I don't think we would have organized under the, uh, and called ourselves uh, queer Latinos back in the eighties. I see it evolve as that, as inclusion, but now the language of, um, of is even changing so that it's trans and queer. Uh, but yeah, it was an insult, I guess, back then to some people. Never was to me. I preferred it. I always felt uncomfortable when people would say say that I was a lesbian or that I had to refer as to as to myself as a lesbian. I always felt uncomfortable with that. I thought it was my internalized homophobia, but really it was that I was like, I knew clearly it was a fem- term for females, and I and I bristled at that. Not that I, you know, not that I wanted to be a male or anything like that at that time. But it's just that um, it just didn't fit. But I had to, that was the only category that there was that I fit into in terms of gender and sexuality. So I, I didn't, in the 1980s, I was a lesbian. And in the early 1990s, I was a lesbian. And, um, you know, I talk about that in the book in terms of how I sometimes felt uncomfortable. But that's why language is important, right? Because then we have these terms that, that that say that we can affiliate with and say, oh, that better fits how I feel, and that better fits what I choose to be, and that's the the where we are today, right? In terms of gender, is something that you choose to be. Um, so yeah, uh, I also identified with the word dyke, and people saw that as uh, an offensive term back then. But even then, I saw it. I kind of liked it because it was hard and masculine leaning, like I was. But uh, yeah, it's language, how it changes and, and how I think that sometimes we just have to go with it and, and uh, understand that language changes and identities evolve. Yeah, and, and you know, another thing when you, you talk about going to uh, LA and becoming an activist, one of the things you did when you were out there, and because this is a union-oriented show, I wanted to bring this up, you were part of one of the more storied IBEW locals in the country, right? Right, right. Um, in 1982, I got accepted. I started applying earlier um, into Local 11 in Los Angeles to be electrician. Now, when I left Tucson, I didn't even know it was an option. Like, <laughs> I would have left immediately if I knew that was an option to be electrician. Uh, and But let me say that I left when I left here, but let's say I graduated high school when I was in 73, that wouldn't have been an option because uh, the bigger unions like, well, the the unions themselves, like all of them uh, didn't accept uh, women until they had to and were, were pressured by the federal government to allow women into their uh, apprenticeship programs and the federal government had to threaten them to uh, regarding federal contracts and regarding the federally the federal funds uh, that supported the apprenticeship programs. 
So it wasn't like it just happened. So I like kind of, well, not kind of, let me take that back. I arrived right in that critical period where local 11 has to accept women. I'm there. I passed the math test and I'm accepted into the apprenticeship program. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that, that I did that. Like somebody said at a, said oh well you know you're an academic now professor and you wasted your time being a an electrician and I never see that time as I, I see myself as productive I'm I've worked on some fantastic projects I met some great people and um developing these skills that gave me the confidence to uh to be who I am today I mean to there's no bigger confidence that knowing inside you can make something and build something and I felt that. And being part of a, a, a union was important. I really did feel, feel part of this larger uh, collection of folks. And when we say brotherhood, I know that that's archaic language, right? It's very gendered in one direction in terms of male, implies male. But it was a, you know, a collective of, of folks that wanted to share knowledge with each other. And we really worked as a team. Most of the jobs that I went to, they, I was out um, with my fellow IBW members. And I never experienced incidents of harassment or exclusion from them. The other trades, yes. The carpenters, the painters, they would all, they, I had to experience harassment from them. The laborers union, yeah. But uh, oh, steel workers, come on, they're, that's their what they're known for. Uh, but um, uh, the electricians around me were always very supportive and um, so willing to, and I hope that the book captures this, so willing to share their knowledge with me. Um, you know, to for for this white older electrician to, you know, I was a cub, I didn't know how to use hand tools and. For him to show me how to put my hands work and where to place them on adjustable pliers or channel locks so that I could use them to my advantage so I could have the ultimate leverage on them. And so actually taking the time to instruct me on e each tool and how to use it and how to use it properly, that takes a lot of patience. And so luckily I encountered a lot of men. Uh, because I never, in my time that I was an apprentice, I never encountered a woman who had reached the position of journey, journeyman or journey person. Um, so I had a lot of um, learning to do, and they were very generous in sharing that knowledge with me. But it wasn't just me. I mean, that's the that's what you do in a union. I mean, you all work together for the betterment of the union, for the betterment of us collectively. So that collective spirit was very much there. And working, like we saw, there was this, like, um, when we wired these, like, huge motors or even a, a whole floor of lights when we finally turned on the electricity. I mean, we took great pride in that. We cheer and we'd always, like, high five each other and we always work toward the betterment of our local of ourselves and also like making sure everything was done properly and safely um that was as an electrician um that was really important was safety as it is on all the trades right mm -hmm. but yes storied right because they um 
in the late 80s, uh, 70s in particular, they worked really closely with the UFW, the United Farm Workers, and they would go to Delano and volunteer their labor. And, uh, you know, um, and so there's great stories there in uh, Local 11 about working toward uh, social, uh, volunteering their time and helping out social justice causes. And last year, I noticed there was in the Pride, the queer uh, Pride Parade in Los Angeles, there, were, there was actually a contingent of Local 11 that walked in that parade. Now, I don't know how long they've been doing that, but I just noticed that last year. Well, you know, and um, when I was uh, went to a, a meeting of, of of LACLA, which is the, the Latino arm of the uh, AFL-CIO, um, and at that time, National Writers Union was still affiliated with the uh, uh, United Auto Workers. So these auto workers that came to the meeting saw UAW on my name tag, but weren't sure why I was, you know. And so, so I ended up hanging out with these guys and we would go to different events in DC. And these guys were all folks that worked at a plant in, um, in Indiana. And every time they would spot a Silverado pickup truck, they would take a picture of it and send it back to their friends back home. And I thought it was the coolest thing. You know, it was like, well, like what you were talking about, that you you were able to make something as a group and you guys all, y'all all, all owned it, you know, uh -huh. and, and watching them do that and the pride with which they did that was really, really gratifying to see that. Right. Right. And, and then they were like uh, what we call in Spanish consejos or advice. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't because you're, you know, you're a union person now. And and it was all very mysterious at first because, you know, I had to be indentured. Somebody had to sponsor me and I didn't know anybody. Luckily, when I stood there, um, when I was being indentured and somebody had to back me up, I went to the meeting and they knew this. And of course, I'm the only woman in this huge meeting. Some old Chicano guy came and stood up for me and sponsored me. But uh, there would, I don't know that there'd be a case that anybody would be in that line um, that wouldn't get sponsored because that was part of the whole thing. And, and, and then that person would follow your career and you'd keep track of them. But yeah, it was very much pride in what you do. And they would tell me too, um, some of the old folks would well, say, well, you don't, you don't want to buy a foreign car. You don't, you know, you want to drive a union car. I mean, just selections in terms of having a consciousness about supporting unions now that I was a union person. So uh, those kinds of things happened while we were working on a break where we talk about the importance of unions um, and unionizing and supporting other unions. Um so, yeah, those are the internal conversations that happened and um, to this, and maybe uh, you know, Ted, and maybe people that are listening to this don't know, but I, I, um, I left uh, Local 11 because I suffered a jo job injury that made it difficult to do my job, and uh, um, they ensured that that I was taken care of and by that I mean 
when I said I wanted to go on to get a graduate degree, they helped me out with that. Um, and they um, uh, supported me in many ways to be able to get a, to complete my graduate program and transition into a new job. And so then I go and become a professor here at the University of Arizona, a position that I just left uh, uh, maybe two years ago. And here uh, it is years later. And um, I don't have a big uh, source of income from IBW Local 11, but I have like around $800 that I earned when I was there that comes in every month. And I consider that important because, you know, I don't know what other job I could have been doing that still many years later would remember uh, and, and, and send you <laughs> retirement income. So, or your, what you earned. And so I, I'm, I'm just really fortunate that I made that decision early on in 82 and uh, that, you know, local 11 has been such a, that I could still take pride in local 11 and my time there. And, you know, I, I'm curious, other than setting you up, uh, you know, as far as, you know, making sure that you could further your education and everything, mm-hmm. how did that work prepare you for academia? Because being in academia, as you know, is more than just knowing things and being able to teach and write. Mm-hmm. I think that in many ways, every time I write a book, or start a book, It's I remember construction, some of the information from construction. I mean, you have to have a good foundation. You have all of these different layers to it, and it has to end. And, and every job, one of the things I loved about being an electrician is that I go to a job site, it'd always be different than the past job sites or the other job sites that I had been on it always had different people it was never the same people it always had a different foreman or a different supervisor um it was just a new crowd a new group of people sometimes you'd see some of the same people you know that you knew from before but it was never the same crew and uh it was always a different job whether it was uh you know and it was always different kind of work whether it was like this time it was motors this time it was lighting or this time it was in a hospital required different signaling systems so it was always different but every job came to an end and i like that i love that every job came to an end because you get to start new and when i became a professor i really liked being a professor because you'd start the semester and the semester would end, and you'd start a new semester. I really like those kinds of of uh, jobs uh, where it comes to an end. But I do see that with my books too. I start my book, and I love when it ends, and I work really hard to make sure it ends. <laughs> and yeah. I I think that's my experience in construction because uh, some people have problems with endings. Uh, I don't. When I start a project, I can see it because the end and the conclusion is very, like, familiar to me. Like, the work that you have to do between starting a project and ending it, it's very familiar to me because that's how I worked in construction. You know, it was the beginning stages, and then eventually it ended, and then you start a new project. Uh, so those cycles, I'm, 
I don't know if that makes sense to you, Ted, what I just explained. No, it makes perfect sense. Um, so speaking of, of things ending and beginning, are you, do you already have another book in mind or um, you're taking a break? Well, I just released the LA interchanges in Ju end of July. So I'm still doing some catch up work with that. I'm not a good uh, at marketing because I don't like to travel a lot. Um, um, but uh, I, um, I have started writing pieces of the next book and um, trying to put it together. And uh, I'm also working on a historic nomination uh, here so that I'm taking care of that. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I, I have so many books lined up, Ted, um, that when I was uh, worked at the University of Arizona, uh, it was hard to concentrate on my writing because I had all these other things that I was doing. But when I get into a book project, I really just like go into seclusion and work on it. And, and I'm privileged because I'm able to do that. But there's projects that I left hanging that I didn't finish um, that I want to complete. But then there's the creative projects that I just want to get done. And so right now I feel like I have to link I'm working on a project that links Tucson to Los Angeles, and it's a historical fiction. So it's about, it's based on an actual person who I went to high school with and who uh, graduated the same class I did, who died, who moved to the big city like I did. Uh, and he was gay, and he died of HIV. But before he died, he came home to Tucson to die. So I wanted to tell that story and... His family um, didn't want me to tell that story. They think that it's better that he um, rest in peace, which I understand. But I'm still going to tell that story by fictionalizing it and uh, then make it a composite of men that I knew died of HIV. So it's not going to be just his story. It, but I want to tell this story of a young man raised in Tucson, born my year, 1955, who graduates high school, goes to Los Angeles, and uh, gets sick and comes back to his barrio near Wakefield um, to die, and what that was like. And he dies in 86. So uh, I think I'm the right person to tell that story, and I think we need those kinds of stories because I think that there are a lot of young men. Well, they're not young anymore. They'd be my age, but this generation of men who just disappeared and died from HIV AIDS and nobody talks about them. And just a reminder that they were vital and they were active and they were accomplished. And uh, so to link in everything that, that I've written about in a shot in, in the shadows of the freeway, LA interchanges, and then link those two books together uh, through this story. Um, I think that'll be a fun project for me to do, and I'm really curious to do it and see where it ends up. And for example, this this uh, this hypothetical character that I named Al Al Alfonso, uh, he's going to grow up and he's going to be in Los Changos when he was at Pueblo, and and so I get to make up things, but things and events, but things that I actually knew about and experienced. So. I'm, I want to have fun with it. And then after that book, I want to finish up these projects that I've left hanging. 
have, have you done fiction before? Well, this is his contemporary fic, uh, fiction. I have never done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's the the fun part of it because uh, I'm uh, I'm no longer uh, working at the University of Arizona, so I don't. There's no reviews. No, there's nobody to give me a raise. <laughs> I don't have to earn anything anymore. So I'm in this point where. Uh, this juncture in my life where I could just do, pretty much do what I want because I want to do it. And um, I, I, I'm writing because I like to do it and I enjoy it. I enjoy the process of like telling stories. I don't like literary criticism because I don't have anything to say really, but I I have a lot that I want to tell. And uh, um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. Writing uh, fiction might be fun. Like when I'm writing nonfiction, there's things that I would like to say that I can't, but that I imagine would have been fun. But now I get to like really uh, maybe engage in that. I don't know. Uh, it's uh, like even writing about Tucson in the 1950s. I don't know if it's a stretch for me, but I think I can pr pretty much describe what it was. Just from my nonfiction background. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, Lydia's book, LA Interchanges, is available now. And I'm Ted Prezelski. Words and Work has been a presentation of Downtown Radio and the National Writers Union Tucson chapter. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.